Thanks for joining us this week on the Collective Defense Podcast. This is Season 1, Episode 4, for our mid-May Iron Update with Bill Swearingen and Joel Bork. The Collective Defense Podcast, where we are defining the next generation of cybersecurity. We are all in this together. We're super excited that you're here today. I'm excited to be here with Bill Swearingen, and we had some really interesting cybersecurity news this week that we wanted to bring to you. We're going to do things a little differently today. We're not going to do any speed rounds. It's just going to be Bill and I talking to you about some recent events and what's going on in the cyber threat landscape. How are you today, Bill? Hey, I'm great, Joel. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm I'm really excited uh, for today's podcast. There's been a lot of really good and interesting cybersecurity news this this week that I'm I'm looking forward to getting into. Well, let's jump right in. Now, I want to start off by keeping it a little lighter, if that's okay with you. Uh, Let's talk about Twitter. So Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey, he announced this week that his employees can work from home forever. What do you think? Do you like it? Do you not? Yeah, uh, so I, I do like it. I, I think that this is probably going to be some of the trend that, that we see going forward. Is is that companies are really going to have to take a take a look back and see uh, what what their strategy with their employees are, uh, where they're going to be working from, and, and what that's going to look like going forward. You know, the, the thing that uh, that I really pulled out of here was that um, what was stopping us from in the in the past from doing this wasn't really a technology problem. It was more of a culture problem, you know, and, and just around company culture. Kind of wondering, you know, that now that we've kind of been in this for a while, Joel, how how are you feeling? I'm not gonna lie, I love it. And and the interesting thing was I haven't seen everybody in what going on two months or so, but I feel like I've been hanging out with them every single day. You know, the people that I'm working with. Now there are others that of course I'm not walking down the hall and saying hi to or playing ping pong with. But I really do think that we may be onto something where corporate cultures are going to start changing in a drastic way. And this could be the start of it. Yeah. So I, I kind of fit, uh, sit on the other, the other fence. I kind of miss it, uh, to be honest, you know, so I, I'm, I'm accustomed to traveling a lot for work and, uh, you know, kind of getting out and meeting with new people and, you know, just maybe having a little bit better uh, interpersonal connections with people. I feel like it's a little difficult uh, with, with the remote workforce, having that, that real true personal connection. I, I don't know. I do think that uh, we are going to see more and more companies doing this, and that may make some of that, uh, you know, that travel difficult. Yeah. Now, are you saying that margaritas on Zoom yesterday weren't the same as being in person? It wasn't, you know, so in person, I, I would have expected to be handed one um, over Zoom. I was expected to make one, right? That is the difference. So I'm, <laughs> I'm in your boat on this one. So uh, I think we share the same thoughts there and I can't wait to have a mark with you in person. But let's go ahead and kick on to the next one, Deal. Sounds good. All right. So it looks like Windows is beefing up their security and they're addressing the potentially unwanted application or the PUP Uh, issue that we've been seeing. So if you're not aware with PUPS, it's potentially unwanted programs, and they are just a constant nuisance. Bill, I'm sure you've dealt with these in the past. What's your view on this? Do you think Windows should be the one addressing it? Yes, absolutely. I, I 100% think that that Windows is the is the right company to or that Microsoft is the right company to address this. What I've read out of this is this is Microsoft really putting the hammer down on other uh, endpoint protection systems, right? So uh, 
for, for quite some time, I, uh, the Windows Defender system has, has been pretty good. They've, they've put a lot of effort into that, into that capability. And I think the way I read this, this is them just continuing to add features to that. Yeah, you know, it was interesting. Just the other day, I completely updated Firefox on one of my other devices that I was spinning up. And I saw that Firefox was actually looking to address some of the this with Firefox extensions. So fighting pups with pups. I, I don't know if that's what you <laughs> right. could call it. But uh, they also had a plugin that looked like it could block Facebook tracking, which I thought was interesting. Read some of the reviews and it looks like, once again, we come back to the battle of it's a great feature, but it gets in the way of people using their device and they'd have to log into Facebook every single time they wanted to update their status. So, Yeah, one of the, one of the interesting things, I don't know if you, if you saw this, but uh, the, the PUAs and the PUP protections, uh, it looks like it's really leveraging the access of, uh, of the Edge browser. It looks like while this is an added feature that Windows is, is, is adding, it looks like it's limited to, to the edge use, the edge use case. I don't know that might, if, if that's the best <laughs> way to say that. So uh, I think for others that are using other browsers, Chrome or Firefox, we're probably going to still have to use some of those other extensions to do this. Now, you know, the, the interesting thing about PUAs and pups, and, you know, I don't, I'm curious to get your take on this, Joel. Yeah. And once again, I would say you're one of those security minded individuals, right? So you're not clicking on the allow button every time you traverse to your news web page. But we are seeing it in end users, right? And specifically ones that aren't as security minded. But it is, it's just an issue. And they're starting to realize that with these pups, they can track more things than just cookies. So, so we're seeing that at a different level and it is going to get worse and worse, I believe. I had a senior analyst at another organization tell me that, and they used a great analogy. They said that managing these pups and this, these unwanted programs was like changing a tire on an 18 wheeler as it rolled down a hill. And I thought that was a great analogy, but from a large enterprise perspective, like just maintaining the status quo is nigh impossible. Yeah. Well, so when you take a, you know, an enterprise look on this, I would consider a PUA or a pup, I, I would consider those breaches in, in my environment. Right. So, so that is unauthorized code that is being, that is executing on endpoints that I would prefer not to. Right. Uh, so absolutely with that lens, they can lead to a big deal. They can. And we, so at IronNet, we've created a whitelist. So only approved extensions are permitted. And if you want something else, you have to submit approval. It's got to go through the whole process. And I think honestly, that's the right answer. It has to be or else anybody can download any extension they want. Yeah, I agree. Now, there was one other piece that I'd like to get your insights into that they kind of snuck into this Windows security update, and that is added support for DNS over HTTPS or DOH. This is a hot topic. It's It looks like it's coming down the pipe, especially if Windows is implementing it. Yeah, th this is certainly a hot topic, and you know, and and I, I just love the acronym, you know, DOE, uh, when it when it comes to to DNS over HTTPS, you know, because that's kind of how I feel about it. You know, I I certainly have have two, um, you know, two very strong opinions about it. You know, from a security mindset, obviously, we we need to be doing everything that we can to protect uh, DNS and, and ensuring that underlying or or overlay technology is protected because uh, it is a it is a vulnerability that we have. However, as we look to move encrypting those DNS requests, what that does, it hinders the security team. A lot of analytics that companies are using are depending on DNS. When you implement DOH, uh, not only are you doing the resolution on somebody else's server, but you don't even have that visibility anymore. 
it comes back to, you know, the whole TLS 1.3 argument. Like, as we encrypt SNIs, as we encrypt DNS, like, yes, it's more secure end-to-end, but also our security teams just completely lose visibility. So as attackers learn to use these new technologies, we're going to be crippled unless we can implement a decrypt capability on the corporate level to really gain visibility into this and continue to monitor our end users and protect them. Yeah, I I agree, Joel. So as a thought experiment, I think that it is a a good thing, right? But once again, this is is an example of technology outpacing uh, the security monitoring needed for those kind of things. And as we've seen, you know, it's nobody's going to disagree that pretty much most malware these days are somewhat network aware, right? They're doing something over, you know, using the internet, whether that be command and control or exfiltration or sending or receiving security keys, those kind of things. As we look to then encrypt that connection, those security teams are going to lose that visibility unless they have that, unless they have the capability to decrypt. That's it. All right. Well, let's move on to the next one. Now, this one, I don't specifically want to talk about the breach so much, but I want to talk about how things are changing and if they should. And I I think you're going to have some interesting opinions on this one. So it looks like Magellan Health was breached again. Now, don't quote me on these dates, but I want to say I've seen their name 2017, 2018, 2019. I think they've been hit a couple times. Yep. And they were hit again. Ransomware, corporate or personal creds were stolen from corporate servers. Looks like the creds included names, employee IDs, addresses, W-2 and 1099 tax forms, which is basically all your personal information. Now, these victims, guess what they're being offered? I, I'm going to guarantee you, you you're not going to get this the first time. Take a guess. Uh, yeah, they're, they're going to get uh, identity protection uh, <laughs> services for, for one year, right? What? How did you guess that? Yeah. And so my question <laughs> to you is, when are we as people going to start demanding more from these organizations who continue to leak our credentials? Yeah, th- th- this is, uh, you know, is uh, kind of brings in that, that concept of breach fatigue, right? So it's funny when you, when you mentioned, take a guess at what you're going to get for this, you're going to, you know, you're going to get one year. I I feel strongly about this, right? So uh, unfortunately, as you, as you start to read into these kind of things, you find people saying, well, we're just going to have to accept the, the fact that our, that our data is lost and move on with our lives. And I, I don't agree with that. Right. So I think companies need to be held responsible for this, whether it be with uh, the enacting of laws like the California Data Protection Act or take a look at what Europe's doing, I I think companies are going to have to face the fact that they're responsible for our data and could be held responsible in court. Yeah, and so I think it's interesting because these credentials are getting leaked, whether it's ransomware or by some other form, and our credentials are being sold, right? They're being sold. There's a monetary value behind my credentials being leaked and sold on the internet. And so my question is, do you believe that, I know you know, in Europe, the, these organizations are being fined massive amounts, but should I be compensated with a check? That's where my head goes, is I wanna get paid. You're leaking my credentials. You didn't invest in cybersecurity to the appropriate measure in order to protect my information. You should have to pay me. That's where my head goes. Well, I mean, I think that'd be great, but uh, you know, I, I don't think that we're going to get there anywhere soon. Um, what, what I'd really like to see is for someone to to come up with a way for people to to own their own personal data, right? So, so the the capabilities exist for people to own that data and allow access to it. To you know, whether uh, whether it be to a company or whatever, and choose the type of information that that they're given to those those companies. And you think about the way the new uh, you know phones work. You take a look at, at iOS and the Android. 
you get to uh, choose, you know, what, what permissions that you give. You want to uh, allow uh, access to network. You want to allow access to location. There should be something like that, that that we have as people that say, hey, I want to allow this company to have access to my name or my address or, I mean, for heaven's sake, you know, my W-2, right, which would have a lot of very personal information um, and then also have the ability to restrict access to that, that data. I agree. And that's the hard part is, you know, you want to go sign up for any service or your organization is even using that service and you have to provide everything. Currently, as consumers, we don't have the choice. So I would love to see that change. And let's uh, let's come back to that in another episode. And I'd love to get more insights into that and how you think that'd be possible in the future. Sounds good. Cool. Moving on to our next topic. It looks like Simon's, I believe we call it Simon's, right? Simmons, Simon's. I say Siemens. Siemens says their power meters are affected by the Urgent 11 vulnerabilities. And it was interesting. So these are power meters that monitor power going to commercial or industrial organizations. And it looks like they are vulnerable to exploits for the purpose of denial of service. Could you imagine? Yeah, you know, as as I was reading into this one, you know, and a lot of times of whenever you see an exploit that that starts with with denial of service, you expect that we're probably going to get some remote code execution on those. Um, And as I was digging into the urgent 11 vulnerability, it looks like there there may be some RCE capability there. This is um, not too shocking to me, you know, as we take a look at, you know, the the IoT type devices, and they're they're not intended to be on, on uh, you know, a globally accessible internet, right? Yeah. And so it was interesting when I was looking and kind of getting like, okay, what are the numbers behind this, right? I've never seen, like I looked up what the actual power meter looked like. It doesn't look like the one on the side of my house, but it's actually deployed in hundreds of millions of locations. Now imagine this, it's at hospitals and in medical industrial areas. It's at aerial industrial area. Imagine an aerial control tower and you can DOS that. Right. Imagine yeah. a hospital. You could DOS the power. Like this is a big deal, and uh, it looks like they have a couple potential patches or firmware updates, but a patch has yet to be released. So interesting stuff. Yeah, and you know, and, and kind of where I where I fall in on these kind of things is is you know somebody may hear this and they may think to themselves, say, hey, I wonder if I if I have this type of equipment, but more than likely that that's all the the attention that these things are going to get right um and they probably assume that uh, well you know even if my system's impacted well what's the chances of, of me getting hit people need to realize that there are search engines that are going out and crawling looking for these devices i i took a real quick look on Shodan, didn't really do a, a lot of uh, digging here. And I found around 20,000 systems that look like they may match this right now. I didn't, I didn't test or, or really look into them, but, but anyway, you know, Hey, there, there may be devices that are publicly exposed and easy to locate. So if you have this type of equipment, it's worth looking into and, and patching. If you're on one of the security teams responsible for something commercial or industrial guys, Take a look on Shodan, see if yours is on there. They're not cheap to replace, but at least you'll be aware and you'll know uh, what you're vulnerable to, right? H- half of security is knowing where your gaps are. So, Absolutely. All right. Well, let's get on to our main topic for today's podcast. This is the third anniversary of WannaCry today. The United States actually released three new pieces of North Korean malware. And I wanted to, before we get into the new pieces of malware, kind of do a little history lesson for our listeners and talk about Hidden Cobra and the North Korean threat actors. Bill, will you kick us off? 
I love this story and I'm glad that we're going to spend some time here. So, uh, you know, so for anyone who's, who's not aware, uh, Hidden Cobra is, is the code name that the U.S. government has given to the North Korean nation state hacking team. And actually, even last month, uh, U.S. government has issued guidance about North Korean hacking activity and even op- offered up a $5 million reward for any information around the DPRK's hacking activity. I find this very interesting to me and, and really like to understand why nation states are attacking and, and, you know, kind of the interpolitical steps that our countries are taking as, as part of this. So, you know, it's, it's no surprise that North Korea is hacking. I think that uh, everybody's probably aware of that. And they're also probably aware that China is doing the same. Last month, two Chinese nationals were charged with laundering around, from what I read, about $100 million of cryptocurrency that they were, that they were laundering. You know, and this kind of came out of a $250 million attack from the Lazarus Group uh, attacking cryptocurrency exchanges. And so, Joel, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure if you're how how involved you are with cryptocurrency at all. I've, are you familiar with uh, what an exchange is and, yeah, you know, maybe why they're being attacked? So I think it's interesting. So when you look at the geopolitics of this, you know, we have put the most intense sanctions you could imagine on North Korea. So they are isolated, right? They have a couple allies out there in regards to China and Russia. But when it comes to trade, like the United States has prohibited that. So they're strapped for cash. And I am sure they're doing crypto mining. But one of the easiest way to get crypto is to hack an exchange, right? This is the place where people, they trade, they purchase cryptocurrencies, and that's where large amounts are held in accounts. So I always tell people, if you're going to have crypto and you're, you're looking to hold it, get cold storage, right? Get a physical device that you can store your crypto on because these exchanges are hacked and they are constantly a target for organizations such as the Lazarus Group. Now, these two Chinese nationals you spoke about, they weren't charged in hacking the exchange. They were charged in laundering the money from the exchange. So I think that was the interesting tidbit here. Yeah, to me, uh, you know, the release of this information, it's really uh, less about the protections that companies need to take. It's more about distinct signals coming from the U.S. Cyber Command to these foreign governments that they're aware of these attacks and they're they're watching the the transfer of funds and the laundering of these funds going to those groups. And I I, th- I find that pretty interesting. I mean, we're not just seeing these hacks on exchanges and they're not just disappearing, right? We are monitoring that and those funds are somewhere and, you know... At least the United States is watching. Going back real quick to uh, to your statement, you know, it's one of those things where they, they ask the bank robber, you know, why do you rob banks? And they say, well, that's because of where the money is. Cryptocurrency exchanges are kind of facing that same problem right now. And, and Joel, I really like your advice. If you do have cryptocurrency, do not leave it on the exchange. Get it off there as quick as possible. I do have a little in exchange, so I, that's a great reminder to take it into yeah. cold storage. Yeah, yeah. The the interesting thing is they don't make it very easy, right? So I know that some exchanges have have limits on how much you can withdraw every day or month or those kind of things. They they kind of make it difficult to pull it out of there. Yeah, kind of getting us back uh, on on the subject here off of cryptocurrency advice, right? Um, I think that the two of us could probably talk about that all day. You know, so so the U.S. government uh, ha- has released some samples, right? I think you took a look into some of the malware samples that was released. Yeah, thanks for bringing me back onto track. So uh, I, I did want to throw out one more piece of kind of knowledge from back in 2018. It looked like the cryptocurrency heists, they led to losses of $570 million. So wow. no small 
chunk of change. But yeah, so there were, back in mid-February, there were six malware analysis reports released by the U.S. government, and it included things like a fully featured rat named Bistromath, all the way down to samples such as Hot Croissant, which was a beaconing implant with backdoor capabilities. So a full spread there, uh, and I'll get you the article here momentarily. You can see those on U.S dash cert.gov backslash North Korea. And that is the national cyber awareness system that you can see all of those releases on. I got to tell you, Joel, I, you know, I'm not sure if you had a chance to look through them, but they're very detailed and give a lot of very good information about it, including uh, IOCs and snort signatures and information, threat intelligence information in sticks format. You know, the one that really stuck out to me, one of the, one of the new pieces of malware that was released as part of this article was was Copper Hedge. It was described as, as a remote access tool, um, you know, Trojan, that's being used by the North Korean APT to target those cryptocurrency exchanges that we were talking about earlier. Now, the reason why that stuck out to me is you often wonder, okay, so if you are an exchange, uh, what type of threats would you expect to see? I've never, never owned an exchange or never operated an exchange, but traditionally I would expect that probably the, the biggest threat would be mostly around web type vulnerabilities, right? I, I would be expecting that there would be some kind of credential stuffing or perhaps SQL injection or, or some kind of web application vulnerability that would lead to the theft of, of cryptocurrency. This tool is an actual implant. It allows for threat actors to perform recon on the system, run arbitrary commands on compromised systems and exfiltrate stolen data with a specific purpose of targeting exchanges. I thought that was pretty interesting. So this is clear evidence of exactly what you mentioned, Joel, with the sanctions on North Korea forcing them to find alternative sources for currency. If the FBI released six variants in February, and we're getting three more now, this is active development that we're witnessing, and I don't think it's going to slow down anytime soon. Yeah, me either. Now, I do have I, to give a shameless plug real quick to our threat intelligence team. So right before this, I was reading through this article and I sent it over to our threat intelligence uh, analyst. And I said, hey, if you haven't checked this out, like, so there's some great IOCs in here. And he just shot me back while we were doing this. He's like, do you even read our threat defined queries? <laughs> Turns out he'd already written one and I'd already ran it in a client environment uh, and we didn't get any hits. But props to our threat intelligence team. They're fantastic. They were way ahead of the game. And we're already protecting our clients in regards to these releases. That's great. Cool. Uh, now, I wanted to touch base on two of the other ones were called Tainted Scribe and Pebble Dash. And they're similar Trojans, and they act like full-featured beaconing implants, as you'd mentioned, with command and control modules. And it looks like they're designed to disguise as Microsoft's narrator. Now, this Trojan is capable of uh, downloading command execution modules from its C2 servers, and then it's got the capability to download update, delete, and execute files, enable Windows command line interface uh, access, and then it can create and terminate processes trying to hide its tracks. And then it can also perform enumeration and recon on its targets. When I was actually digging through this, it was really interesting because Pebble Dash, the sample that I was, I was digging into, it actually obfuscates its callback descriptors. So it takes the IP address and the port, and it uses a custom ZOR algorithm to then obfuscate that. Uh, and then what it does is the sample uses a fake TLS scheme in an attempt to obfuscate its network comms. So it actually pulls a random URL from a list, uses that in the TLS cert, 
and then it will reach out to its C2 server and it appears like a standard TLS authentication. It's interesting. Most of the other fields are, are filled in with random data though. So why do you think they're doing that, Joel? Do you think they're, they're doing that to bypass traditional security controls or web content filters? What, what, what do you think the purpose of that is? Absolutely. hundred percent, right? You rotate the URLs, you're encoding your, your IP and your ports, you're bypassing traditional security controls. And this is another plug for, you have to have behavioral analytics looking at these behaviors because attackers are aware you're looking for them in signatures in specific domains and IPs, and they're already programming it in to their malware to walk right by them. Yeah. So, so that's what I really like about moving into behavioral type analytics. So as, as uh, our, our adversaries look, look to, to implement more sophisticated controls, more sophisticated implants to bypass our security controls, what's interesting about those is statistically, those would stand out in a, in a behavioral uh, analytic, right? So you don't expect a connection to Google or to Amazon or to a, you know, a, a legitimate service to be doing these types of things, right? So finding those behaviorally should flag when that's occurring. Yeah. And they do. Once again, we mentioned this was the three-year anniversary of WannaCry. Let's go back in time a little bit. Now, there was actually a hacker who saved the internet from WannaCry, and he did it in record time. He got a lot of publicity about saving the internet, and then shortly thereafter, he was arrested. Now, you've read this story. Talk to me more about Marcus Hutchins. Yeah, so the, I believe the article you're referencing here was an article that was released today on, on Wired.com, Joel, and it, and it, it goes through a, a long description about Marcus Hutchins and you know some of the confessions that he made. So if you're not aware of Marcus Hutchins, he's a pretty prominent hacker these days, you know, probably a, a name that you may have heard or, or malware tech, uh, you may have heard of him there. He was, a, he was arrested at DEF CON a few years ago for the circumstances were, were kind of light. He was really well known that, that he stopped the WannaCry by registering a domain. Yeah. And before you go much further, talk to me about that kill switch. So a lot of people, okay, he stopped WannaCry. Great. But how did he do it? Right. He was looking at the source code and then we were laughing at it earlier. Talk to me about that kill switch and why it was crazy that he was able to do it. Yeah, so so Marcus is real well known as as a malware reverse engineer, and he had received a sample of WannaCry, and in his uh, reverse engineering, he found that at, during execution, WannaCry reached out to a a long uh, URL, and he went to go look at it, um, and he found that that domain had, had not even been registered, right? So he he wasn't sure what it was um, and why it was there. So he went and out and he went out and spent eleven bucks registered the domain uh, with the intent to really count to see how widespread this this uh, this piece of malware had been right so if every time that is executing it's reaching out and phoning home to this to this domain he would ha he would have a really good sense of knowing how many computers were infected by this piece of malware but what actually happened was that this was a kill switch built into into WannaCry and if that domain existed the malware just wouldn't execute yeah and so WannaCry would have hit every single vulnerable device to WannaCry within 24 hours. But he was able to register that domain, stop it. And two things could have happened. 
the people who released WannaCry could have gone in and changed the source code and actually changed the kill switch and released a new variant, but they actually didn't. What happened instead was attacks started occurring on that domain that he registered, trying to take it down so that WannaCry would pick back up again. And he said he did sleep for days on end trying to keep up this infrastructure, but he was able to successfully keep it up and therefore stopping WannaCry from spreading further. Yeah, so the interesting thing thing about WannaCry, and I'm sure everybody is probably re- remembers this, but this was right during uh, the Eternal Blue uh, release. So Eternal Blue was a vulnerability that, uh, or an exploit that was found by a uh, an NSA dump uh, that that attacked the the Windows SMB or server message block um, uh, capability of Windows. So when you say every vulnerable system. What, what that really means is if, if one system in your network got infected, potentially every Windows system in your environment would, would, get, would get compromised, right? So by him stopping this through his analysis, it made him a rock star. He was kind of riding, riding high in life and at, at DEF CON. Everybody knew that he really kind of prevented a worldwide catastrophe. Yeah, but what, then he was arrested. Was it 100,000 Twitter followers, like basically overnight? Incredible. Yeah. Yeah. But then, so, and he actually got arrested for what was known as Kronos, right? So he was strong armed and I can let you talk a little bit more about this, but he started off doing some small time development for some not so nice people. And then they continued to say, Hey, we need more out of you. And by the way, I know your name and address. Probably not not any of our listeners, but the security, you know, the younger security researchers that are just getting started, sometimes they, uh, you know, sometimes they kind of choose the wrong path for a little bit. And that's what really kind of happened with Marcus here. He found that he understood computers a, a lot better than everyone else, uh, you know, kind of fell into some of the hacking forums and you know how those things go, Joel, you know, like kind of uh, showmanship and one-upsmanship started writing some code that led him down a path of contributing to some malware that was released. And then what he actually realized was he could make a lot more money for being on the good guy's side. So I think that's the lesson of the day here is don't get sucked in to doing something shady because I promise you, you know, especially for his, his mental well-being as well, right? He was anxious about this for years of his life. And then finally he got onto the right side of the fence and was doing things that added value to the cybersecurity community. And, you know, he had a clear conscience. He stopped want to cry. He got fame from that, but then his past caught up with him. Yeah. I'm, I'm really glad you pulled that out of that article. That's something that really stuck out to me as well, Joel, is, is the article does a really good job of going into his, his, uh, his state during this, you know, so his, his emotional state during all of this, as he was developing that malware, he, he really kind of fell in uh, substance abuse, you know, those kind of things. Cause he had, he had that thing sitting on his shoulder knowing that he had done something wrong that he wished he hadn't, you know, and there was a quote in there that, that I pulled out that I just uh, really truly showed you exactly how brilliant this man is, is, you know, this is a Marcus Hutchins quote. In my career, I found few people are truly evil. Most are just too far disconnected from the effects of their actions until someone reconnects them. And, and I think that that really just shows the brilliance of, of Marcus, right? So so he, he really understood that, you know, people are just, you know, trying to, to exist and, and truly not evil. And a lot of times they don't even understand exactly what their actions, what the downstream impact that could be. Yeah, and he's even reached out to some people controlling botnets and, and you know, pleaded with them saying, you don't have to do this, right? Let's reconnect yeah. you to society. 
he's done a tremendous amount of work for the the information security profession as a whole. You know, he, he's landed in a, in a very good career. Uh, he, he works for a, a great company and they're doing some great things in removing malware and botnets from, from the internet. And if you're listening to this, we hope you do the same. So thank you so much for joining us for the mid-May Iron Update. This was Bill Swearingen and I am Joel Bork. Thank you so much and have a great day.